Well, welcome to the Revolution of Interdependence podcast. My name is Will Sampson. I'm a change coach and a social scientist who guides executives and companies to new levels of growth. You know what? If you want to improve your life all by yourself, that's your business. But you want if you want help from others, that's our business. And that's what this podcast is all about, helping each other succeed. And we do that by inviting people into a growing revolution of interdependence. And my guest today is Madeline Claire Weiss. She is a Harvard-trained licensed psychotherapist and mindset expert. She has a, an MBA and is board certified in executive career and life coaching. Madeline, she's a former group mental health practice administrative director. She was the corporate chief organizational development officer and associate editor of educational resource program at Harvard Medical School. And she's the best-selling author of Getting to Great, and we're going to spend a lot of time about talking to Getting to Great, and that's five strategies for work and life. So, Madeline, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, and thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here chatting with you. This is great. This is great. So, listeners of this podcast know that the first question we always ask every guest is, because we're, we're talking about a revolution of interdependence, Tell us a story of someone that helped you, um, someone that when you look back on your life story, you realize they were a significant actor in your life. How much time do we have? I have, <laughs> I have so many, so, so many. But I think if I go, oh, geez, every time I think of which one I want to talk with you about another just really warm, loving image pops in to my head. But let's go with my father's sister, my Aunt Jeannie. So I used to write her letters from summer camp, which I didn't go to until after my father passed away. I was never allowed, and that's a whole other story. So in any case, I would write her letters and she would write back to me about how much she enjoyed my writing. And I don't think I knew before that, that my writing was anything. Right. And uh, she was, I guess you could say, the first in a long line of people who shone a light on my intellect and whatever abilities abilities went along with that. And um, I think you can hear and see that really meant a lot to me. I love that. What a great story. Thank you for sharing that. I haven't thought about that in years. You know, a lot of, a lot of guests say that. That's the question we always start with because we're focused on revolution of interdependence. They're like, Oh, that person. Yeah, I, I haven't thought about them. I need to reach out to them. Or if it's somebody that's gone, like, I wonder how I can be that for somebody else. You know, that's that often comes up. So that's great. And and there have been so many right. like her since her. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, you've done so much great work. I want to get in and talk about the book in just a minute. But but I know one thing that you do a lot of work with is around the issue of stress and it's certainly true the pandemic raised all of our stress globally on a whole variety of issues, but I'd love to really just start because 
it's rare that I get somebody with with the level of training you've got. Um, I want to really start by just digging into the numbers. Tell us tell us more about like what should we know about what's happening in terms of like give us a stress by the numbers uh, understanding yeah. of our world today. I printed out a copy of one of the slides from one of the talks that I give. I don't know if you can see this. I, they people can, yeah, you bet. Yeah. So. Um, People were already stressed, and especially here in the U.S., it turns out, we as a nation are um, more stressed than the average nation numbers are. And uh, even before then, we were. And now, of course, we are um, ever more so. I'm having this another thought I never had before, which which is that, you know, I did have this before. Millennials are supposed to be more stressed by the numbers than the rest of us. And of course it raises the question why? And I think part of that is there's no sort of operating manual anymore. And when I was being raised a hundred years ago, it was, you kind of had um, images of what it was supposed to be like. Right. When when you were this age, it was this. When you were that age, it was that. And, and for these young people, it, it's like there hasn't, none of us have been through this kind of stuff before. Right. So I guess what's good about that is that where parents may err in thinking they know, and then they try to lay that on their children. I think more of us realize we don't know. And and maybe in some way that makes better parents of us, I'm thinking. You would hope, you would hope. But I, I yeah, and do you get the sense that it's, I love the way you described it. It almost feels like we now have to make it up in ways, you know, we had these cues that came before from various cultural institutions and all that, that yeah. just there for us now. So maybe, maybe part of the stress is from what you're, you're saying is it's like, we're like, we almost have to make some of this up because it, because it's not as clear. How to well, you act. know, humans, um, the adult human on average makes about, believe it or not, hold on to your hat, 35,000 decisions every day. And now all of us are making decisions about things we never made decisions about. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm pretty sure when my uh, dad was coming over as a child on a boat from Scotland, he wasn't thinking about how many likes on Instagram he had. Right. You know, or or how much he should care about that or not. Right. Or, or what it was. Or whether or whether he should be on LinkedIn instead. Or, right. Exactly. Yeah, it is TikTok or whatever. Yeah. Now I know that stress is. You have a sort of a special reason for thinking about stress, and I'd love to um, tell how you more about that. I do. So I mentioned that my father passed away when I was young. Uh, He was forty-two, and I was fifteen, and um, I was. You know the children's book, Madeline. love that book yeah Yeah. like she was not afraid of mice she loved winter snow and ice to the tiger in the zoo madeline just said poo poo and so did i 
too many times to my dad. Right. So um, I was grounded a lot. Mm. And when he, people didn't, or at least in my part of the world, didn't talk to their children about their feelings and what they were making of things in their head uh, the way they do now, which I'm happy about. Um, But they didn't then. And so I went for years because I was such a pain in the you-know-what, thinking that my father died of me. Yeah, yeah, until one day at the cemetery. um, This story is how my book starts, by the way. And I said, I broke down with my mother about how all my fault it was. And she said, no, honey, it wasn't you. It was work. Mm. So her her idea was that my father died of work. I I remember the moment vividly where I first realized what was um, troubling him. Mm-hmm. He had real high blood pressure. They said he had, I mean, a lot of it was probably genetic and nobody's fault, but um, yeah. Wow. So I started out, I was... I was very worried about my mother financially. I don't think he was expecting to die and didn't leave a whole lot for us to take care of ourselves with. And my mother, God love her, went to work in uh, bookkeeping in a steel factory. And, And I was worried for her. So I tried to get a job at 15 years old in Pennsylvania, where I didn't realize there were child labor laws. So there again, there again, I'm walking around with my mind left to its own devices, wondering what's wrong with me that nobody wants to hire me. So now, you know, that has left me with, I am grateful, 10 plus grateful every day for the work that I am privileged to do. So I have all kinds of people coming to me about how they can't stand their work. And boy, are they coming to the right place. Because <laughs> to me, like, are you kidding? Right. So, and there's a little tweaking we can do so they can fall in love with their work the way I'm in love with my work. But I started out the um, quickest and best education I could find for myself. And I'm sort of proud of that I found this for myself. Um was a certification in medical technology at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate Hospital. And so from there, I was working at the USDA Biological Control Lab and Drexel Universities. I don't think it was, I think it was college then, but in any case, their um, cardiac catheter research lab. So it was all, you know, like bugs and guts and (laughs) All this clinical chemistry lab. And And there was always a calling, a really strong calling to the people. So little by little, I kept piling on education and experiences to land me. I call myself the pivot queen. I just kept pivoting and pivoting and pivoting till I... I finally landed in a place where I think lots of people want to be, which is to 
being able to do work that you absolutely love. Yeah. How do you use your experience? Because I know you, you got a, a, a large amount of training, but I'm wondering how you bring your experience to your clients. Because certainly in, co- in coaching, we're, we're coaching at a very different level than somebody doing, you know, somebody who's a trained therapist. It's a different kind of work. But but I'm just wondering how you get clients or, and how you get folks to really sort of appreciate the journey because you can tell them your story, but they really have to begin to own that appreciation. How do you help coach people into that process? Well, you'll notice that so far today, I've been talking with you a lot about what my mind was making of things Yeah, and my mind made that my father died of me. Um, my mind made that there was something wrong with me that I couldn't get a job. So it's actually in my materials, like on my website, that I help people master their minds. Wow. Yeah. And you're right. It's not It's not the same thing necessarily or exactly as therapy. In fact, there, there are some people who come to me who I feel need therapy first. Right. In order to be up to this mission which is to master to master your mind darwin has a wonderful quote something like the highest phase of moral development is when we realize that we must master our own minds wow that's isn't that something isn't that something absolutely so that's kind of what i teach you know like There's so many, I wish I had the number. I don't have it at my fingertips, but the number of thoughts per second that dash across the mind. Yeah, yeah. The senses bring 11 million bits of information. I do have this number per second to the brain. Amazing. The brain processes 50 out of 11 million bits, which is ridiculous. And so in order to make sense so that we don't think we're crazy, right? we like complete the sentences, we fill in the blanks, we do whatever we need to do to make a story right. that makes sense that we can live with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But remember how true could it be if it's only 50 out of 11 million bits and that those 11 million bits are nothing compared to what's out there in the universe. Right. And we only, you know, only my the senses only picked 11 million and then we only 50 of them go to the conscious mind. Right. So what the brain does to make it coherent is a story that many people are stuck in. Yeah. And they don't realize that they made the whole thing up. Right. Right. Uh, I think, you know, I work with people in long-term, some of my folks are are people in long-term recovery. And one of the sayings I use a lot is that, that the caller is inside the house. Like the, you know, remember the old horror movie? You're like, who's, where is this person calling from? Well, they were calling from the upstairs phone. And so often the problem is in, is in our own head, our own thinking. Oh, so often? Mm. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. mostly. Yeah, we'll say mostly. 
So you mentioned that your story uh, is a good way to understand the lead into your book. So let's get into that. I want to talk. I want to talk more about your book. Let's just start there. Tell us. Tell us how the story led to the book and and what. Give us a kind of an overview of the book, and then I've got some questions I want to ask you about the book itself. So I have uh, way back right. after I got out of the laboratory. I was like the administrative director of a group mental health practice and doing lots of psychotherapy. And so I have that kind of background. So I always had my hands in it a little bit. I spent the last 13 years before I moved here in 2013 and became private practice full time. I was um, the associate director of the anatomical gift program at Harvard Medical School. Wow. But then but then I decided I loved that by the way. But did really? I did. I did. Why? What what was so fascinating about it? Because the people who would call me yeah. either to donate their own bodies or because the loved one who was a donor had passed yeah. needed needed two things. They needed information right. and kindness. And that's all I had to do. I knew the program, obviously, and and had, a, I guess, the right kind of heart for the work. So I had, I still have a friend who is what she's retired now. She was a judge. And she used to tell me that at the end of the day, somebody hated her because she had to come down on one side or the other. She said, every day, somebody hates me. I said, geez, my people, they, they bless me up one side and down the other because they need these two things. They call on the phone. They get so it was just really, really rewarding work. But so I always had my hand in doing a little psychotherapy. And then I can tell you why, but eventually I morphed over to coaching. But then I hung out the shingle in 2013 and everybody made fun of me. They said, do you know how many people there are in DC just like you? What do you think you're going to do? You're just going to hang out a shingle. I said, yeah, whatever. We'll see. Right. You know? And things were going so well. And I said to myself, you know, I study evolutionary psychology and brain science and traditional psychotherapy and coaching and this and this and this and this. What's working here? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what is working? Here? And also the, the people that I was seeing were, can you hear the dog barking? Oh, he's fine. He's fine. That I is not him. my dog. That is the dog in the hole. So, and the people were also different one from the other. So I thought, what are the common denominators here? Yeah. And so I laid, literally laid out all my um, folders. Right. Or all my people that I had recently worked with and was working with and came up with. Yeah. That no matter how different they were and who knows what tool I'm pulling out of the toolkit at any given time, because it's kind of an art like that, right? Yeah. Right. And came up with this five-step process yeah. that yeah. really that really seemed common. 
to I'd love to hear. Yeah. What are those steps? So imagine my delight when it broke down into the acronym GREAT. And you didn't force it to be great. And like, it really did work pretty well. I don't remember the moment that it happened, but I remember, I know in retrospect, it's like, yeah. I just love that it breaks down into. Yeah, that's the book. Yeah. So the, the G, the first thing is the grounding in the belief that it is possible to have a great life. It doesn't have to be like this. And that you, the client or whoever, the reader, have everything you need already to get from where you are to that great life we all want and can have. Now, typically people don't come to me with in that grounding. Typically, they're just in pain and they just want the pain to stop. Like, do something. Tell me something. Teach me something. Some. So I, and I'm sure that you do this too, create that space for them to be able to step into, I hold that belief until they can find, and, you know, little by little, they see what they're doing. It's making a difference and they begin to believe. So until they, I hold the space until they can believe it and own it and run with it on their own. The first line of the book is a great life depends on a great fit between who we are and the environments. And that, that includes all those people that you talk about as being so important and the environments in which we work and live. So if a great life depends on the fit between who we are and the environments, first we need to know who we are. Yeah. So the R is for recognizing who we are, not who someone else said we should be or not who we even may have thought we should be all along. But what's, what's true in here in our interests and our abilities and our strengths and our weaknesses and our hopes and our dreams and vulnerabilities and all of that, that makes up who we are. And once people have a better handle on that, they can go uh, E for exploring the environments. The internal environment includes um, the Advaita Vedantas, which I studied for 25 years, have a concept called good company. So it's the kind of company you are for yourself inside your own head. Right. A quality of yourself talk. Oh, my God. Yeah, huge. Absolutely. I say to people, you can't talk to yourself like that. <laughs> you can't do that. Right. But also the environment is the people that you, um, the environment you create includes what kinds of people you do and don't let into your life, which as adults, we have more control over than we do as children. And then the A, Mm -hmm. G-R-E-A, is William James said that 
um, action doesn't guarantee happiness, but there's no happiness without it. So A is for action. They can't just sit there and dream about how they wish things would be. They They have to manifest. Right. So they have to, so they have to take action, and then T yeah. is for the normal, natural, predictable, inherent. Um, it's for tackling that resistance to change, yeah. which we which we typically talk about early on, um, where I'll say to people, um, "You're you, the human organism." wants to keep things as homeostatic as possible. The comfort zone, even if it's painful, it's what you know, it's your comfort zone. So if we try to exceed that or step out of it, there's gonna be a part of you that's gonna have something to say about that and try really hard to hold you back. So what's that gonna look like on you? Right. How, How are we gonna know that's happening? And when I was in social work school, they called that prediction and control that if you can predict it before it's happening, they can go, there it is. We knew it. We said it. There it is. You know, so that's, that's the G-R-E-A. I love that. What a great model. I'm excited to share this. And doesn't it, you know, going back to the, where we started with the topic on stress, doesn't it, it follows that some of those things that that we really want, we hope would be different are made. It's it's more difficult to break out of that homeostasis when it seems like all the world has become unpredictable. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we lost all these institutions yeah. that made sense to us. And then suddenly the whole world was attacked by a global pandemic. Like, doesn't it, I mean, doesn't that kind of uh, compel us as humans to sort of preserve and go into this comfort zone? Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I 100 or more percent agree with you. I was thinking as you were saying, and I think it explains the ever increasing tribalism also, because I think that's built into us to huddle with trusted others, the more threatened we feel by natural and social elements. I mean, even like the weather is weird. Yeah, I mean, so especially weird. the weather is weird. Especially but, it's weird, yeah. yeah. But there's, there's so much threat from everywhere. Right. It feels like. And so, it, yeah, it explains a lot. Although, I have to say, well, maybe it was forced. I was going to say there seems to be such an incredible rise of entrepreneurialism at a time when people are huddling to be safe. And that's not safe. Right. No. Yeah. So there's that interesting effect. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, I put on my sociologist cap and say, maybe that's because as the institutions break down, there are some among us, including, you know, people like myself, probably like you, that are trying to figure out, well, how do we create a new kind of culture? How do we create new things that that people in which people can find meaning excuse me so yeah yeah actually all of my clients are doing um not all most are doing very sustainable kinds of 
project work or building companies around that. So it's yeah. it's kind of exciting to see them creating around the world. Yeah. They think globally and they're thinking long-term, which would kind of, I mean, it's good that they're not throwing up their hands. Yeah, I, I agree. I love that observation and I agree with that. It, it just seems like um, there's a, there's a um, individual that I'm hoping to get on the podcast at some point. His name is Ari Wallach. He wrote a book called Long Path. And his question is, how do we be good ancestors? And it's that. Oh, I love that. Yeah, there's this idea that we really can be good ancestors. While everything looks crazy and chaotic, we can we can be good ancestors because people are going to keep coming onto this planet. Regardless of what we do today, people are still going to be here. So how can we be sure that it's better for them moving into the future? There's a wonderful quote that I just thought of when you said, how can we be sure? Because, of course, we can't be sure. But. There's this quote from the Talmud, a rabbi Tarfan. I hope I don't botch this. It's, do not be daunted by the world's grief. Do justice now, love mercy now, walk humbly now. And here's the part. You are not obligated to complete the work nor are you free to abandon it. Wow. Isn't that something? That, yeah, it's a mic drop moment. I mean, that's powerful, powerful stuff. And I just want everybody to know that because I think some people do throw up their hands because it does seem so daunting. Right. And what he's saying is more like Plato-ish where he's saying we all have a part to play and we have to play our part well. It's not all on us. Right. We have our own part to play. Yeah. And we we have to play that well. And I feel, I feel like I know what that feels like. And I feel like that's like what I'm aiming to give that is beautiful. It reminds me when you when you speak that way, when you when you quote that, it reminds me of the um I guess it's it might be a midrashic concept, but it's it's the idea of tikkun alam, this uh-huh. notion of the peace that kind of the kind of the the peace that exists when everybody is doing their part, when everybody is doing what they're supposed to do. I Isn't mean, that wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. If everybody just did their own yeah. Whatever it is, whatever that and is, course, and of course, this process gets right. you right to what is. So, I'll give you like a, a couple of quick case example. Yeah, please. Yeah. So, speaking of living in a story, so nice. I have this wonderful man who um, thought that his parents weren't as competent as he would like them to be when he was growing up. He always thought he could have done a way better job of running the family than they did. No surprise, because I don't think people realize how much they recreate that early drama in the workplace. No surprise, he finds himself over and over and over again, right up with the C-suite and thinking they're all incompetent, every single one of them. 
And I said to him one day, I said, you know, you can keep creating that over and over again, you know, and I don't think people do that because it feels bad, even though it feels really bad for everybody, you and the people on the other end of you. They do it because they're trying to master it, the repetition compulsion, not because it hurts and they love that. That's stupid. It's because they want to get it right. I said, so if you think everyone around you is incompetent and you think maybe no one believes you, so you're going to keep creating that and trying to get somebody to believe you, like, do you really think the whole C-suite is going to say, oh, yeah, you're right. We're all incompetent. Or... Or if you think you're so great, why aren't you running your own company? Right. Yeah. And if you run your own company, make sure that you people it with people you think are competent. Otherwise, you may as well just stay here. Right. Right. He left and he started. (laughs) He left and he started a company and he he picked his partners very, very carefully. People who he really admired. for what they brought to the table. He was willing to think they were better than he was because that's what you're supposed to do, find people who are better than you are at the things you're not going to be doing. And so, yeah. So that's that's a story of someone once he knew the story that he had created and was living in forever um, could master that. I love it. Well, I love and I love the the G-R-E-A-T model. I think it's really powerful. And I want other people to dig into it. How do they, what's the best way to find the book? Let's start with your book. How can they find your book? Well, if you go to my website, MadelineWeiss.com, that's like the hub. Everything's there. So right at the top there, there are like these four buttons. Yep. And one of them is they can schedule an appointment with me and I would love to talk with them. I do offer, as most people do, a complimentary intro session. There's another button for the book. There are buttons. There's a button for the online course. And for speaking, there's a button for the demo reel. So, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. That's um, I think that's actually how you and I met was through a speaking forum. And so I'm excited to have you um, to have I know. I know. on that as well. Well, Madeline, this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you for your, the gift of your presence. Thank you for the great. 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 This was great. Yeah, it was. <laughs> actually, I didn't mean that. I didn't. I, but it really I was. didn't. I didn't know whether you caught it. That's why I was making a sentence. <laughs> Sometimes I get caught in my own mind as we've as we've talked about that can happen. No, 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 no. I find there's something called the reticular activating system is like when you buy a certain kind of car, you all of a sudden see it all over. So now anytime anyone uses the word great, I see it. (laughs) (laughs) I see the word everywhere. Well, this has truly been great to hear about the about your great book. And I'm super excited to share you with the audience and have people connect with you. So thank you so much for your time and your presence. And we'll talk soon, okay? Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was really fun. Thanks. All right. Thanks to everyone who joined me today. And that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, can you share it with one person in your world today and help me get the word out? 
And if you like what you heard here, you can sign up for my weekly insights. It's just a short bit of wisdom that comes out once a week. And to do that, head over to willsampson.com and sign up for the newsletter. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Will Sampson Change Coach. Please hit the subscribe button below to be notified of the latest episode. Thanks, everyone. And I will see you the next time on the Revolution of Interdependence podcast.